0: Well, he had spent nearly his entire life in hiding, hoping, praying that he wouldn't be found, and yet there was always that reality that someday that knock might come on the door. Someday he might be found. He had just a meager existence. He was there with his family, small place that they lived, a little bit of help, but he always knew that someday the reality is that that knock could come on the door He could be taken, and he could be killed because of who he was and who his family had been. So he waited, and he watched, and he prayed, and he waited. And one day, that knock did come on the door. He was wanted by the king. So what was he to do? What could he do? The king has called him. He can't say no. He's got to go. So he doesn't know if he's ever going to see his family again. Doesn't know if he'll ever see that life that he had Uh, scraped together, despite what he might have had, he might have had a palace, he might have been the next king himself, but here he is being summoned by the new king to almost certain death. We'll catch up with that story at the end, find out what's going on there. But we have been talking over the last uh, several weeks, but then last Sunday especially, we, we introduced part one. Of this sermon, of the idea that we have been raised with Christ. So, this is our reality. We've been raised with Him. We are alive with Him. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that's not us anymore. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are alive with Christ. We have that resurrection life, His new life that is in us, working through us. That is our reality because that's our reality, we are seeking those things that are above. We're setting our minds on him. We are focusing on him because of the reality of his resurrection life in us, his life working through us. We're letting our hearts and our minds dwell on him, letting our knowledge of him grow so that we might reflect him better. People might see that resurrection life in us more clearly. They might see him and not see us. We're dwelling on him in the same way that David did, where David said, I meditate on your word night and day. Letting his word change our minds, letting it reshape our hearts, and letting that transform our lives. Letting his word dwell in us, be in us as we set our minds on him, as we seek him. Put off those old things that don't belong in our lives anymore. As believers, there are things that shouldn't be here anymore. And the term that was used by Paul, the idea is putting off, like taking off a garment. It doesn't fit anymore who you are. Those old things, that old legalism doesn't fit you anymore with that resurrection life it doesn't belong there. There were those two lists of things that we looked at. Those sensual sins that everybody knows those are wrong, those things that don't belong in the life of a believer, but then also those socially acceptable sins that everybody we look at them and we kind of turn, you know, we kind of look away and think okay, well everybody does it, so it's really not so bad. Those are just as wrong as the ones that everybody knows are wrong. Those don't belong in the life of the believer. We've put those off. Last week, we looked at what it means to put those off. Take that off. doesn't belong there anymore. We're to be killing sin, or it's going to be killing us. We saw that from John Owen. We need to be killing sin, or it's going to be killing us. has to be intentional. It doesn't just give up in your life and die. It doesn't just roll over and give up. You have a new life within you, a resurrection life. But we have to be working out what he has worked in. Chambers helped us to see that. We have to work out what he works in. His salvation, his his justifying work, his cleansing work within us, he does that. We can't earn that. But how that is seen in our lives is up to you and me. How we reflect that change that is in us is up to you and me to show that to the outside world. We work out what he has worked in. We have freedom in Christ. We have a resurrection life because of the work that he has done. It's still a struggle. We have to purposefully put to death those things, put off those things that don't belong, and then purposefully put on the things that do belong. What things should be present in your life? What things should be there that everybody should be able to see? Well, we should be able to see the character of Christ in your life. This is verses 12 through 15. I'm going to read that for us. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, in each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must Forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Put on, then. So we're to put on, then, because of what has come before, Uh, because of who we were, because of what we've put off. What well, we were instructed to intentionally put off those things that don't belong anymore, we're also intentionally then told to put on these things that do belong. And each of these things that are in this list are things that are directly related to the character and nature of who Christ is. We are to put those things on. If we're going to reflect him, we must also reflect his character. I put on these things because we know because of what we know to be true of having been raised with Christ. We put on these things then because of we know what we were in before, what we put off. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we have that resurrection life. We put on then because we know what we put off. We put on then because of we, we know what it means and what it is, that resurrection life that we've been given. Clothes that don't fit anymore are gone. We now have these clothes to put on, this new garment that we wear, shining and reflecting the character and nature of who Christ is. We put on, then, because we are chosen by God, holy and beloved. So he's chosen us. We're chosen by him. We picked him because we see early on in the book of Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that they believed by faith. So they chose him. They believed in him. They walk by faith. We saw in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. So they walk by faith. They're continuing to walk in him because they chose him. But he chose us. Long before we chose him, he chose us. And the word therefore chose is also the Greek word for elect. So this is predestination. All right. So buckle up, we're going to talk about predestination just briefly. We don't have time to go super in-depth for predestination. We'll let Pastor Mark do that when he's not on vacation. We're going to look at just a few things that I know to be true about the character and nature of who God is, what his word tells us, and then two things that I know I have to fall back on as a result of who he is and what his word says. All right, so the first thing that I can hold on to, and I'm going to put up some verses here, and you can write these down and do these for your own study later. Sorry, Patty, this is going to be a lot of homework. We were talking about that yesterday at Skip's service. All right, so here's some things that I know to be true about God and his character. God is love, not desiring that any should perish, Second Peter Three, nine. I know that to be true about God, that he desires that everyone receive that free gift of salvation that he, he gave us through his son. He does not desire that any perish, that any should be separated from him. This is just one of many, many verses representing the heart of God, that no one should perish. No one should be forever, eternally separated from him. He made that way of salvation. This is the other thing that I know to be true. John 3.16, he sent Jesus to die for our sins, to fully and completely take the punishment, not to pass over it, not to say, I forgive it, and, you know, let's pretend it never happened. Jesus fully and completely paid the debt for sin, the debt that you and I owed, that we were required to pay in full. Jesus paid all of it and offers that free gift of salvation to everyone. Whoever would believe in him, it is offered to all that we might not perish, as is the heart of the Father, that we might not perish. So Jesus made the way of salvation. That's another thing that I know to be true about God and about his word. I also know that God is sovereign. He's over all, he's in control of all, he's all-knowing, He is eternal. He knows those who will receive him, and he knows those who will not receive him. Even though he draw them to himself, he knows those who will not receive him. Despite that, despite all the evidence pointing to him, despite the drawing to himself, there are those who will choose not to believe. That's Romans 9 and 10. Basically the whole book of Romans, but 9 and 10 are really helpful. So Romans 9 and 10 John 6:44 and 47, 60 through 69, and then John 12:32. Again, these are just a few verses just to get you started. There are so many more verses that you can go to that talk about the fact that God is holy. And this is what I have to fall back on. When I think through predestination, I have to fall back on these two things. God is holy, in a way that I will never understand until I see him face to face. I will not comprehend the depths and the majesty of who he is and his holiness this side of heaven. Someday I will see him and I will know him and I will understand completely all of this. Full, complete picture, no more questions, no more wondering, no more continuing to try to learn and to figure out and to understand. I'll know it because I will know him and I will see him. So I have to fall back on the fact that he's holy, and I am not, and someday I will see it. Second thing is I have to fall back on the the reality, I've been given a choice. Even if somebody were to say to me, well, you're not elect, or you are elect, I've been given a choice. What do I do with that choice? I have to respond. Do I accept Jesus for who he is and what he has done, or do I reject that? And that is the same for every single person. And don't you ever let anyone look at you and say, you're not elect or you are elect because you are given an opportunity to respond to the gospel. He doesn't desire that any should perish, but you have to respond to that. He offers it to you as a free gift. What will you do with that? Will you accept it as his salvation? his way of rescuing you from certain death to perish from him from eternity, separated from the one who loves you and created you and designed you for an eternity with him? Are you going to accept that or are you going to reject that? I know those two things to be true. He's holy and that I have a choice to make. And that is the same for every single person. We have a choice to make. All right, so we made it through that. Nobody threw any tomatoes. Nobody threw any hymn books at me. Those are still in your pew, by the way. If you ever need something to throw, I think they're still there. I'm still learning. I am still growing. Yes, there's one, of the, there's one of them. Thank you. You're using it to write on instead of throwing. You need to keep that. Hang on to it. I'm still learning and growing as I strive to understand God greater, to understand the depths of his majesty. And I hope we're all learning together. I don't have all the answers. And if you have questions, I would love to sit down with you with God's word, and we'll find answers together from God's word. If we can't find those answers together, we'll go to Pastor Mark. And if Pastor Mark doesn't have those answers, we'll find Pastor Dave. And if Pastor Dave doesn't have those answers, we're going to go to Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine a which is essentially a biblical way of saying, I don't know. So you can look that verse up later. It's basically, I don't know, God hasn't revealed that but we're his chosen ones, this passage tells us. We are chosen by God, holy and beloved. Do you feel holy and beloved this morning? Do you feel holy and beloved as you sit in traffic, especially as it gets busier and busier this time of year? Do you feel holy and beloved as you wait in line at Walmart and it's way too long and they have way too few registers open and it doesn't really feel like the air conditioning has totally kicked in? Do you feel holy and beloved as you get stuck behind those annoying cyclists that probably ride way too slow on the side of the road? Okay, we don't always feel this. It's the reality for us, though. As chosen by God, we are holy and loved. In his eyes, we are righteous, not by our works, not by our good deeds, not by our own earned holiness, but it's the righteousness of Christ on us. We wear his righteousness. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our depravity. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees us forgiven because of the work of his son. We're holy. Not holy in our action here and now, but holy in his standing. Someday we will be holy in our actions. We won't have to worry about sin anymore. We won't have to worry about the effects of it or those that are around us and their unholiness as well. Someday we'll be with him and we will be holy. But when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ on us. That's the reality. We're holy and we're loved. Not just merely accepted. Not just like, oh yeah, okay, he's part of the family. I suppose we ought to invite him to the, to the cookout on July 4th. No, you are loved by God. You are special to him. You are holy and you are loved. But it is so hard some days to live that way. Why? Why is it so hard to remember this reality? We're chosen by him. We are loved by him. In his eyes, we're declared righteous. We are justified in his presence because of the work of his son that we have accepted. Can you imagine how different our days might be if we woke up and those were the things that were first on our mind? I am chosen by God. In his eyes, I am holy. I'm justified because of the work of his son. And I am loved by him. It might make the day a little bit easier. It doesn't mean it's going to be a you know, a walk in the park, unless you're retired. Then maybe you do. It's going to make it easier. How would that change your day? How would that reshape your interactions with people? All right, so what then do we put on? We have these lists of things that we're to put on that correspond to the character and nature of who Christ is. We're to put on compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So compassionate hearts. This literally means the bowels of compassion. So not every culture places the seat of emotions in the same place. But this is supposed to be a compassion that is coming from within you. This is genuine. This isn't something that you just put on and take off. And, you know, sometimes you're compassionate, sometimes you're not. Depends on who you're with and who's watching. This is to come from within you, the depths of who you are. Put on compassionate hearts. Jesus showed us this. Jesus did this. We're to reflect him in his character. Put on compassionate hearts. Some of us are better at this than others. There is a reason that my girls go to Jenny instead of me. She's, a, she's better. Sometimes moms are just naturally better at expressing that compassion than others, uh, than dads are anyways. But we're all to have this. Whether we express it exactly in the same way or not, we're all to have this. Compassionate hearts, reflecting the heart of Christ, reflecting his character. We're also to put on kindness. I'm not even sure why it had to be there, but Paul felt like we he had to say, please be kind. You know, that's something that we teach kids. Please be kind, don't be mean. That should just be a given, but Paul felt it was important that he put kindness in there. Please be kind to each other. I keep seeing people walking around with T-shirts that say kindness is free. It's true. You can be kind to one another. It's too easy sometimes to snap back at somebody or to be rude to somebody that you're driving by and they cut you off and you pass them again and give them a dirty look or who knows. Be kind to each other. Christ was kind. We put on and are to reflect his character, and that involves kindness. We're to be humble, so humility has to be seen in our lives. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus is God. Jesus could have carried on every single attribute of who God was and shown that in all its glory here on earth, but he didn't. Scripture says that he humbled himself. He didn't attain to taking on those things and showing those things here. He had a purpose. He had a reason. He was still fully God, but he humbled himself in that he didn't display all of his glory, all of who he was. And then he humbled himself to going to the point of dying on a cross, the cruelest of deaths. If Jesus can do that, don't you think we can take ourselves down just a couple notches on our own perception of ourselves? I know we like to put our best foot forward and represent ourselves well. But let humility be what's seen, because that glorifies God. That shines his character in our lives. People see him instead of seeing us. So we're to be humble. Let humility be something that you're characterized by because Christ was characterized by humility. We're also to be meek. Uh, Weirsby says meekness is not weakness. He sees meekness as having a power, having a strength, but restraining that for the good of those that are around you, those that you're interacting with. He compares it to lightning or he compares it to a horse. So lightning or electricity. So you have... Electricity that can do incredible things, but that electricity, if it's not harnessed, can hurt people. Or you have a horse. A horse can has a ton of power, but if it's not bridled carefully and handled properly, it can hurt the one who's riding it or anybody else that's around. So meekness isn't weakness, it is power that's under control for the good of those that are around you. For the good of those that you're interacting with. Let meekness be a characteristic in your life. That others see that. Christ represented that. Christ showed that. Also to put on patience. You have to put patience on with the rest of these. Because you have to understand that everybody else around you, all the other believers that are here today, and all the other believers that you interact with, are also working on this. They're also working on putting on these characteristics of representing Christ. And some of them are a whole lot further behind you in their sanctification than you are. Some of them are way ahead of where you are. We have to be patient with one another. Verse 13 says we are to bear with one another. You don't bear with things that are easy. You bear with things that are difficult, And often it is difficult as believers. We come together. We're not all in the same place. We're not all in the same point of our sanctification. God is doing different things in each of our lives, but we have to be patient with each other. We bear with one another, understanding that God is working in our hearts and working in our minds. How this is then shown in our lives. Be patient with one another, bear with each other. You're not perfect. Don't expect other people to be perfect either. The overarching theme behind all of this is God's grace. God's grace on our lives. His grace that he took us from what we were. We're not there anymore. His grace in that we're becoming more than we were yesterday through his Holy Spirit working in our lives. His Holy Spirit working through his word, working through other believers. We're not who we were yesterday, and hopefully we won't be tomorrow who we are today. We'll continue to be growing to be more like him and reflecting him. That's his grace. You're not perfect yet. Someday you will be. Someday you will be. You won't have to worry about sin anymore. You won't have to worry about what your reaction is going to be when you see so-and-so. You don't have to worry about what your reaction will be when you get stuck in traffic. You don't have to worry about what your reaction will be if your kids get a little crazy. You're going to be perfect. You're going to be with him. We're not going to have to deal with sin anymore. We're not there yet. By his grace, he continues to be patient with us. He continues to mold us and to shape us and to make us more than we were, more than we are, and conform us to the image of his son. It's his grace. It's him working in us. And through all of this, we have to be patient with each other, forgiving one another. Here's what the verse says, though. This is, this is the thing that gets us. And it says, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So that's the standard. That is the standard for forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive others. That, that hurts. Talk about lowering the boom while raising the standards. That's a high standard to try to meet. That hurts. We don't always want to forgive as Christ forgave. How did he forgive? He did so perfectly. He did so completely. That's how he forgave. He forgave with no attempt, no thought, no, no, not even for a nanosecond holding on to any kind of grudge. But that's too often how we forgive. We forgive with stipulations. We forgive with those oh-so-convenient back-pocket grudges that we hold on to that I might pull that out someday. Or I forgive, but I don't trust them. We're to forgive like Christ did, completely, completely forgiving. That's a high standard. You can't achieve that in your own power. You need his Holy Spirit work working within you, giving you the strength to be able to do that. You can't do that without the love of God in your life. That's what that says here in the next verse. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You can't forgive as Christ did if you don't also have the love of God in your life. You can't be patient with the people around you if you don't also have the love of God in your life. You must have his love working in you and working through you into the lives of others. 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. have to have his love in your life. Some more verses that you can look up. Romans 13, 8 through 10. talks about Paul's talking about when there's love, love and loving your neighbor as yourself. That does away with the rest of the law. If you love your neighbor as yourself, then all of those commandments, the Ten Commandments, if you're loving them as you love yourself, you're all set. If we look even further than that, at Mark 12, 30 through 31, Jesus is talking to that man who comes to him and says, what's the greatest commandment? He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But he says one commandment. The greatest commandment is this. And then he says two things. If you are doing the first, you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can't... Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then not love your neighbor. Because his love is going to transform you. If you're loving him with all of you, you're loving him first and you're loving him most, you can't help but show that. That will transform you because his love is coming through you, flowing out into those that you're interacting with. It's because you have it in the right order. You're loving him first. So he can say the greatest commandment is this. And then it covers those things. It covers all things. When you put God in the rightful place and you let his love fill you, then you can forgive as Christ forgave. Then you can be patient and bear with one another. You have his love working in you and working through you. And then you're going to reflect his character. We reflect his character as we seek to be like him. The final characteristic here in this first point is that we're to let the peace of God rule in our hearts and our minds. We're to let his peace rule our hearts and our minds. In the middle of the storm, let his peace rule your heart and your mind. How did Jesus sleep in that boat on the Sea of Galilee? How did he sleep when there's that storm raging around them and the disciples are going crazy and there's Jesus asleep? Well, he had peace because he knew he he was going to be fine. He's God. He knew he was going to be fine. But he also knew he was in the center of God's will. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. He knew it was going to be fine. He had the peace of God. Everything was fine. It's the same thing for you and me. We can have that peace of God. When things start going crazy in our life, when the storm comes, because it will still come. You know that. The storm will still come in your life. As a believer, you can count on storms being a part of your life. But you can still have the peace of God in your life. And let that rule your hearts and rule your minds. Because that's not our natural tendency, is it? To let the peace of God rule our hearts and our minds. Our natural tendency is to panic. And after we're done panicking, we have this mad scramble for some kind of control we're not going to get control of the situation until we back down we let his peace rule our hearts and rule our minds because when we panic and we grab for control as best as we can whatever we can wherever we're whatever it's not trusting that's not faith if we're to let the the peace of christ rule in our hearts and our minds we have to fall back and remember the character and nature of who he is remember that he is sovereign He's in control. Nothing will happen to us apart from the will of God. That doesn't mean that's easy. It doesn't mean that's not still a bit scary. But you can have a peace that doesn't make sense, even in the middle of great loss and great trial. He gives that peace. You can't drum that up. You can't uh, will that into your life. You have to fall on him and let that peace rule. It's not a wish. It's not a, I hope you would do this. This is a command from Paul. You let his peace rule in your hearts and in your mind. It's a peace that's found in Christ. It's based on Christ and it's only possible through Christ. And for that, we can be thankful. We can be thankful for that peace. We can be thankful for his love that comes through him, that he provides, that then makes all these other things possible. We're to let that thankfulness be a characteristic in our lives as well as we reflect Christ, as we seek to reflect him and we seek to be like him. So we're to have the character of Christ in our lives, but we're also to have the word of Christ in our life. So we're to let his word fill us. Verse 16. It says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what fills your mind? What fills your mind? We've talked a little bit over the last few Sundays about out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What fills your heart? What comes out of you? Is it good things that are coming out of you? Is it helpful things that are coming out of you? What are you letting live in your mind? You can think of your mind as like a house. You let things live there. You store things there. There are things that come into your mind and things that just kind of move through your mind, but it's like a house. What are you allowing to be there? Are they good things that you're letting stay in your mind? Are they wholesome things? Are they uplifting things? Or is there a lot of clutter in your mind that if somebody were to see inside your house, they, you wouldn't want them to see that room? You wouldn't want them to see that closet? You really wouldn't want anybody into your mind because there's a lot of stuff going on there that you don't want coming out. But it will. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how do we have a mind that is a wholesome mind, that is a clear mind? We let the word of God dwell in us richly. We let his word fill us richly, and, and the, the word richly there means abundantly. So we're to let his word fill us to the point of overflowing. If you want the peace of God in your life, if you want to be able to love people as you should, you got to let the word of God dwell in you richly, abundantly, overflowing, meditating on his word night and day like David did. Whether that is in little bits as you're trying to memorize scripture, a verse at a time, whether that's Uh, having that regular routine of when you get up and you spend time in God's word, but let it dwell in you richly because then that's an abundant overflow of God's word. It's in you. It's spilling out. Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. You're going to then want to do two things. You're going to want to teach and you're going to want to admonish. That should be a natural overflow of the abundance of God's word in you, richly dwelling in you. You should want to be able to tell other people about what you've read, teaching. When you look at the Greek there, it's just that. It's just sharing knowledge. Here's what God taught me. Here is what God has shared with me, whether that's through Lighthouse Kids, that's through ABF, That's through a small group, or that's across the table with somebody with a cup of coffee. Here is what God has shown me from his word, and you're excited about that. Here's how I'm learning. Here's how I'm growing. Check this out. So that's teaching. Admonishing. Admonishing is a little bit further, but it's the idea of taking somebody aside who perhaps they've misunderstood God's word or used it incorrectly, and you're lovingly, carefully, caringly coming alongside them and saying, I don't think that was right. Let's look at God's word together. It's correcting somebody in love. All of this has to be done with love, teaching with love, admonishing with love, letting love undergird all of that, holding all of it together as the word of God fills you, fills your heart, fills your mind, overflows then into how you interact with other people. So as God's word dwells in you richly, you're going to want to share that with others, but you'll also want to be praising him, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That is going to look a little different for every single person, and there's different ideas here behind what, is, what are songs. Well, some are saying, well, that's the Psalms, so those are those songs that we know are written in scripture, so those are the songs. And hymns, hymns are us singing back to God things that we know to be true about God. We're praising him. Uh, Spiritual songs could be understood as we are uh, uplifting others, we're trying to help exhort and to teach others through our singing of who God is, almost like singing doctrine. So a little different spin on each of these, but they're a result of God's word filling our hearts and our minds. When God's word is filling your heart and your mind, your natural reaction is going to be praise. Praise. That might be outward. It might be inward. When I'm doing my own devotions or I'm meditating on something, or I'm, often it's while I'm riding my bike. Scripture comes back to my mind. Or as I'm laying there in bed. Singing out loud is not always the best option. And it's as much for my insecurities as it is for your benefit. You don't necessarily want to hear me sing in a solo. But there's praise. There should be praise in your, in your heart and on your lips. In a corporate setting like this is perfect for singing, because you can't hear me, but God can. And all of us, all of our voices together sound amazing. But praise ought to be in your hearts. Praise should be on your lips. And then there should be thankfulness in your hearts as well. You should be thanking God for his word, what he teaches us through his word, what he provides for us through his word. This is our, this is our church logo. We're a church that's built on the word. We have so much to be thankful for because of who God is, what he has done for us, and what his word shows us, what it reveals of his character and his nature, who he is and how he wants us to be as a result of that. So three things that ought to be present in your life as a result of the word of God dwelling in you richly. You ought to be full to overflowing to the point where you just want to share it with somebody. Whether that's teaching or it's admonishing, you want to share it with somebody. It should be full to overflowing. Praise should be on your lips As God's word dwells in you richly, you can't hold it back. It's going to look different for each of us. Some of you are excellent singers, and then I can't sing very well at all. So it's going to look different for me than it does for you. Praise ought to be on your lips, and thankfulness needs to be in your heart for who God is, for what his word is, what that means for us. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. You ought to be able to see the word of Christ in your life. And God works in us in different ways, too. We think about this, like, okay, I can't do all of these on my own. God created us. God made us. God shaped us. He made you you. How do we do all of this? Well, I'm thankful that God's Holy Spirit continues to work in us through every stage, through every step of the way. And often he makes us become, helps us become, more than we are. So I was thinking through this, just thinking about Moses and his call there at the burning bush. As God's calling him, he's coming, he's out there in the desert tending sheep, and he's coming to that burning bush, and there he is, he's on holy ground, so he takes off his sandals and he's talking with God, and God's telling him what he's going to do, how he's going to go lead the people out of Egypt. He's going to give them freedom. And Moses says, I can't do that, God. I can't speak to Pharaoh. And God says, but I'll be with you. And he continues to come up with excuses. And eventually, God agrees, okay, Aaron's going to come with you. He says, but I can't, we don't, what do we say? God says, I'll be with your mouth. He helps us be far more than we are just on our own. We're still growing. We're being sanctified. We're being conformed into the image of his son. He's shaping us to be more than we are. So yes, he understands who we are and our, who he made us to be, our, our natural tendencies, our uh, gifts, our abilities. But he helps us be so much more than that through his word, through him working in us, working through us, his Holy Spirit working and shaping us to be a greater reflection of his son. So we're to have the character of Christ in our life. We we are to have the word of Christ in our life, but we're also to have the name of Christ in our life. So that's verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Name-dropping can be pretty powerful and very helpful. You know what I mean by name-dropping? If you're trying to get a new job and you're like, oh yeah, I know so-and-so who happens to be the CEO of the company. Oh yeah, okay, good. Well yeah, I think we do have a position for you. Or, oh yeah, I know so-and-so, they work here. And oh yeah, sure, cool, we'll give you the friends and family discount. So Name dropping can be really helpful. It can get you out of sticky situations. So Jenny and I were coming back from one of our anniversaries. I think it was when we only had Evie because I think we were staying we, she was staying with Jenny's parents there in Rockland while we got away for a couple of days. And on our way back, last supper before we were back to pick up pick up Evie and then our our anniversary vacation would have been would have been heading towards an end at that point. We stopped at the breakwater in Rockland and I think we just had salads or something like that, but we were sitting down on one of the docks, which, as far as we knew, they were totally public. So they put them out there every year. Looks like you can go sit on those docks. The Samoset Resort's right up there behind you, so we're thinking they put them out there for people to sit and enjoy and maybe take their boat out from there. So we're sitting there, and we see this lobster boat coming towards us, and it's just ripping at us way too fast, it looks like, to be able to stop in time. And we're thinking, okay, we think this is, public, but maybe this is actually private. So this boat comes flying at us. He turns at the last second and slides right up to the dock, and these two lobstermen get out that are rip-roaring drunk. They are way drunk, but not so drunk that we felt like we were in danger, but just enough. They were giving us a hard time, thinking we're from away. So they're thinking we're tourists, we're there at the Samoset Resort, and they're just giving us a hard time. Well, we started saying, oh yeah, she grew up, Jenny grew up in the area and yeah, she knows Buzzy Kinney. So Buzzy, uh, yeah, we went to, she went to school with his granddaughter and we go to church with him and oh yeah, isn't he the leader of the lobster co-op out of where you fish? And that changed everything right there. As soon as they knew that we knew Buzzy Kinney, no more problems, Not, nothing else from them. They just moved on, they went up and found somebody to get them a golf cart and go up to the resort. Name-dropping can be pretty powerful. How you represent that name, then, is really important. How we represent the name of Christ in our life is extremely important. We are to represent him well. Finally, in whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. His name is the grounds for everything that we are to be doing. If you can't do it in the name of Christ, don't do it. If you can't do it and know that God's going to get glory from this, not you just hope he will get glory from this, you ought to know, yes, God will get glory as a result of me doing this. If he can't get the glory from that, or it's like thinking, you know, would I do this if Jesus was standing here beside me? He's actually a whole lot closer than that. He's not standing there beside you. He's here. If you can't say, yes, he would get the glory, or yes, I can do this with him right here, you shouldn't be doing it, because you are representing him. Christian was meant to be a derogatory term in the early church. That was supposed to be a term that was derogatory to those believers. They were known as people of the way. And Christian was like, oh, the little Christ. But they took that on, and we take that on, and that's the flag we fly. We are Christians. We represent Christ, but we have to represent Him well in all we say, in all we do. We are to be reflecting the character and nature of who He is, not just in the way that we live, but in the things that we say, how we represent ourselves in person, but also how we represent ourselves on Twitter, on Facebook. We represent Him. And if we don't represent him well, that can have extreme repercussions. I've talked about my friend before that I grew up with going up to Camp Good News. He grew up in a Christian family. He grew up in church, all around Christians his entire life, Homeschool kids. So lots and lots of connections where he should have seen and he should have known the reality of who Christ is despite what other Christians do. And he walked away from Christ because he saw other Christians misusing the name of Christ, saying, I'm a Christian, but living anything like that, anything but that. They weren't living like a Christian. When he joined the military, that just pushed him that even further away from following Christ. And when he came back, and he and I had a chance to talk over working out and eating and stuff like that, um, this was always the thing that he came back to, was people not representing Christ well, people saying they're a Christian and then acting like anything but being a Christian. How long does it take somebody to overcome that? How long does it take for them to have known what they should have been, a Christian should have been representing, but then they're not? That can take a long, long time to repair that damage. You are to, in all that you do, in word or in deed, bear the name of Jesus well, represent him well in all that you say and all that you do, giving thanks to the Father through him. We owe everything to him. There's nothing that we can take ownership of about who we are, our spiritual life. As believers, we give thanks to him because we bear his name and we represent him and we are who we are because of who he is. We owe everything to him. We ought to bear that name well and represent him well. We are not who we were because of Christ. We are who we are because of Christ. We're not who we are. We're, I'll say that differently. We're going to be something entirely different later on because of who he is, because of Christ, because of his work in your life transforming you you ought to be thankful for that. We have a new reality, because we've been given life by the king. So we started with a story. Here's this man. He's been called into the presence of the king. That knock came on the door. He'd been waiting for that knock, hoping it never came, because that meant almost certain death. Because that was the reality. When there was a new king, the old, uh, the old king and his family would all be killed, all wiped out. There are no heirs that could possibly come up and try to claim the throne or try to cause some kind of problem and a revolt. So everybody was killed. And this guy, his family had been killed, all except him. He'd only just barely escaped. And he had just barely escaped as a very young child. And as a result, he had injuries as a result of trying to escape forever scarred, forever maimed as a result of trying to escape from those who are almost certainly going to take his life. But here he is now in the presence of the king. So many years later, thinking he'd escaped, and now the time has finally come, falls down in the presence of the king, armed guards all around him. There he is, shaking in the presence. And King David says, Are you Mephibosheth? He says, I am. And he says to him, Because of the promise I made to your father, Jonathan, I now restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, shall dwell in my house, and eat at my table always. Isn't that a cool picture of what we have in Christ? We deserve death. We deserve to be forever separated from the presence of the king. We deserve judgment because of the character and nature of who we were and what we represent. But we're given new life by the king we're given a forever life because of Christ. We come into his presence. We can come into his presence boldly because of the work of Jesus Christ. We're accepted. We are forgiven. Not just merely accepted, but we're loved. We call God the Father our Heavenly Father. We are joint heirs with Christ. We have a new resurrection life because the King has given us life when we deserved death. Those old clothes don't fit us anymore. The old reality of who we were does not belong anymore. Now we have this new life. We have these new clothes that represent this new life forever in the presence of the king, never to be separated from him. Now we're here on earth someday forever in his presence, seeing him face to face. That's our reality. And if we're going to reflect him We have to seek him. We have to put on his character. Let that be seen in our life. Have to let his word fill our life because we bear his name in our life. We're to reflect him and we have to seek to be like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the reality of who we are in you. We're not who we once were. And we're becoming so much more than we are today because of your work in us, Lord, your word working in us, working through us, your Holy Spirit transforming us. I pray that others might see you in us in our character. We might let your word fill us to overflowing so that others might get the glory and they might know more of you. And that we might represent your name well so that as we represent you well, others will want to know who is this. Why is that such a huge thing in your life? Who is this Jesus that you talk about? Father, I thank you that you make us so much more than we are just on our own. You help us to do things bigger and greater and grander than we could do all by ourselves because it's you that do that work. We just have to fall back and rely on you to work in us and through us and then be amazed when we see your hand at work. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.